whether you're leading your family or leading your children or leading a specific ministry in the church or in a parachurch organization, what Peter talks about in our passage is applicable generally to everyone, even though he's particularly speaking to formal leaders. Once or twice a year, my family and I get a chance to make it back to Tennessee to visit family. And when we go back to visit, I always look forward to what's become kind of an annual tradition. Going to play golf at Spring Creek Ranch Golf Course in Memphis. It's consistently rated the second best course in the state of Tennessee. And I always look forward to playing it when I make it home. It's like a special treat for me. It's something I put on the calendar and look forward to months in advance. And one of the things that Spring Creek offers golfers is what's known as four caddies, four caddies. In fact, you're required to use a four caddy if you're playing for the first time or don't know the course. And a four caddy is someone who's assigned to a group of golfers and the four caddy knows the course extremely well. They're normally excellent golfers themselves and they follow your group making sure that you keep on schedule They help with local course knowledge. They help you read putts on the green. They give you encouragement and even tips for your swing. They help you find your ball when you hit it in the tall grass. They're kind of there for all those different things. Four caddies are really invaluable. But at the end of the day, you're still the one who's expected to execute, right? You're still the one who's playing the course. It's still your swing that matters, not the four caddy swing. Four caddies come and they play a supporting role. And they can play an important supporting role as you make your way around the course. And I want to suggest this morning that that's a good image to have in mind as we read about formal leaders in Christ's church this morning. Every analogy obviously breaks down at some point, but I think four caddies are analogous to leaders in Christ's church. Because good church leaders are there to walk with you. They can provide warnings. They can give encouragement. And you hope they know the course. You hope that they've got some experience in the way that they're leading. And at the end of the day, each of us is responsible for how we follow Jesus. After all, it's your round of golf. It's your swing, so to speak. But formal leaders can be crucial in how we follow Jesus. So with that in mind, let's read about how Peter describes these formal church leaders in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. Recently, listened to a new podcast entitled Dr. Death. And it's the story of a neurosurgeon named Chris Dunch, who grew up in Memphis, actually went to high school with a number of friends that I know. And he was trained at the University of Tennessee Medical School, earning a PhD and an MD. And he goes and he starts a practice in Dallas, Texas. 
And as he starts his practice in Dallas, Texas, he's got operating privileges at a number of different Dallas hospitals. And the podcast really documents how he begins to establish his practice there in Dallas. The only problem is that Dr. Dunch is a horrible surgeon. In fact, the point of the whole podcast is to determine how a physician like Dr. Dunch could be allowed to practice medicine at all. In the course of a few years, he performs surgeries, mainly on people's spines, that lead a number of people to become paralyzed and two people to even die after undergoing surgery with Dr. Dunch. And physicians in Dallas who witnessed his work actually wonder, begin to wonder if he's an imposter. Did he really even actually attend medical school? He was so bad, in fact, at what he did, some even openly wondered if he was hurting people on purpose. It's an interesting documentary that highlights gross malpractice and a doctor who doesn't seem to know how bad he is at what he does. He keeps going until he's forced to stop. When it comes to medicine and physicians, we intuitively know that it's important for them to have the characteristics and the competencies that are needed to do their job. Otherwise, lots of damage is done physically to our bodies. On top of that, people lose trust. They're harmed. If a physician doesn't have the characteristics and the competencies, then medicine is not able to be administered in the way that it was intended. We expect certain things from our physicians. After all, what they're doing is really important. And just as physicians can do major harm to the body when they don't properly practice their trade, so too leaders in Christ's church can do major harm when they don't properly practice their trade. I wonder this morning what you expect from church leaders. I wonder this morning if you ever considered how important competent and compassionate church leadership is. In many instances throughout church history, church leaders and ministers in particular are referred to as physicians of the soul, physicians of the soul. And we intuitively know the damage that a bad doctor can do to the body. But I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider what a bad church leader can do to the soul. You don't have to look very far to see the damage that can be done through poor church leadership. It's so easy when placed in positions of leadership in the church to become prideful. It's easy to manipulate others with guilt. It's a temptation to be motivated by greed and how much more you can get, to crave more and more power, to desire control over others, to thirst after bigger crowds and more prestige. Church leaders that teach bad theology can do major damage to a person's soul. Ministers who don't properly understand the gospel of grace can lay heavy burdens on people that lead to anxiety and bondage. Leaders who take advantage of the people in their care emotionally or even physically, as we've heard in the news recently, can kill people spiritually and leave them spiritually handicapped for life. We know how this works physically in the world of medicine. Yet the soul, even though you can't see it, is just as real as the body. And the soul needs attention and care that is often provided by leaders in the church. So it's important to consider church leadership. The stakes are much higher than we normally think. 
On one hand, real good and eternal impact can be accomplished through good church leadership. And on the other hand, real evil and eternal damage can be done through bad church leadership. And the main point for us this morning, the main point, is that Jesus loves his church so much that he provides leadership for her. One of the ways that Jesus loves the church and cares for her is that he raises up, he provides and gives authority to shepherds that care for the flock. And as long as the church remains in exile and finds herself in a fragile society like we do today, she will need faithful shepherds. Structure and support is needed in the church so that people stay spiritually strong so that people are properly equipped to move out and serve and to love their neighbors. This is an important passage too for us as a church plant, who will one day in the near future be identifying, electing, and installing leaders of our own, likely sometime this time next year. This passage takes a bit more of a teaching bent this morning. It's more teaching than preaching in some ways. But it's important because those who are elders need to know what's expected. Some of you have been elders in your church in the past. Those who aspire to be elders need to know what's expected. And just as importantly, congregants who over their lifetime are going to nominate and elect elders need to understand what kind of leaders they should choose. So as we consider what a leader in Christ's church looks like, we're going to tackle this passage under three headings this morning. We're going to look at the characteristics required of church leaders, the competencies required of church leaders, and the community required for church leaders. Okay, Got the characteristics, the competencies, and the community. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at the characteristics required of church leaders. As we begin, it's important to recognize that when Peter uses the term elder here in this passage, he's using a term that signifies formal church leadership. The Greek word that is being translated here is the word presbyterus. It's where we get our word presbyterian. Presbyterian is biblical, right? We're a Presbyterian church. Peter's talking about a formal leader in Christ's church when he talks about elders in this passage. He's not talking about age, obviously. He's not so much talking uh, uh, about uh, where you are in numbers. Instead, he's talking about an office. In our context, an elder would be an official leader in the church as well as ministers of the church. And there are certain characteristics of church leaders that Peter highlights in our passage. The normal leadership characteristics that are championed in our culture can be described with words like strong or bold, powerful, and brash. The normal way of leadership in our society, in our, in our culture, is to boss and to nag, to threaten and to punish in lots of ways. But leaders in the church exercise a countercultural kind of leadership. It's a different way altogether, and it's undergirded by humility. We see this first characteristic of humility highlighted by the way Peter himself addresses his readers. I want you to notice this. It's significant that Peter calls himself in verse one, a fellow elder, placing himself on the same level as these leaders in Asia Minor. This is significant because if you know anything of Peter, you know that he was the original leader of the church in Acts. He was the founder of the church in Rome. He was a witness of Christ's suffering. He was highly influential in the beginnings of Christianity. He had a resume 
that could blow every other resume out of the water when it comes to church leadership. But he comes, and in verse 1, he comes as a colleague, a fellow elder, refusing to place himself above others or to think of himself more highly than other leaders in the church. Humility really is the foundation for godly leadership. Leadership has a foundation, and every leader in Christ's church has to know themselves first and foremost as a walking grace miracle. A walking grace miracle ministering to other grace miracles. Loving Jesus and his grace in your life has to be in place before a person can move out and effectively feed the sheep. But it's not just humility that Peter highlights. He also talks about generosity as a characteristic of a church leader. A church leader, Peter says, undertakes his task not under compulsion, but willingly in verse 2, or freely, or generously. As a leader in Christ's church, A leader is meant to take that role freely. A leader is not coerced. They're not forced into the position. Instead, they willingly enter into it. It's a voluntary action. It's not just a matter of duty, but a calling that is willingly undertaken. Instead of looking at the pressures and the tasks of leadership and the people that they have to deal with as something they've got to do, I can't believe I got to do this. It's something that they look at and they say, I can't believe I get to do this. It's something that they want to do. And and when you have that willing posture and leadership, it makes a huge difference in how you affect and influence people for the gospel. It's noticeable. We also see on top of humility and generosity at the end of verse two, that there's a sense of eagerness that's attached to good church leadership. The word takes on a sense of having to be held back. It's a reflex that desires to do good for other people, to exercise your influence for the flourishing of others, which is what true power really is. Exercising your influence so that others might flourish, creating an environment where others can succeed and use their gifts. Leaders are not in it for themselves They're not greedy, as Peter says. They're eager to bless and love and serve. It's almost like you can't stop it from happening because they're so eager. The last characteristic we see from our passage is gentleness. And this isn't normally a characteristic that is valued or highlighted when it comes to leadership in our culture. But Peter mentions it in verse 3 when he says, A leader is not domineering over those in your charge. There's a kindness, a gentleness, a meekness that God values in the leaders of his church. And this is an unaggressive leader, a leader that that you can approach with your problems and your struggles and your doubts. Why can you do that? Because you know that you'll be dealt with in a gentle and kind way. To be gentle, you've got to know your own frailty and weakness. It's what makes you gentle with other people. And it's a requirement for church leaders. So we see certain characteristics highlighted by Peter in this passage. And it's important to note that this isn't an exhaustive list for church leaders. This is just Peter's letter to the church in Asia Minor. There are other characteristics in other places in the New Testament where uh, it's filled out a bit more. Specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. You might go read those later this afternoon. But there in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualifications for church leadership are listed more specifically. But Peter, 
felt it important to write to these churches who are about to experience persecution that their leaders must be humble and willing and eager and gentle. Peter's really highlighting what godly character looks like in this passage as he addresses these church leaders. And character has to be in place for the leaders of the church because at the end of the day, pastoral leadership is what we call declarative and never legislative. Okay, go with me for a minute. In other words, ministerial leadership is persuasive. We can simply proclaim, but we can never legally bind as Christ's leaders in his church. I was reminded of this kind of authority the other day when I was running on Leon Creek Greenway just down the street from my house. On the way home, I was on the trail, and in the distance, I saw a rather large snake making its way across the path. And as I got closer, I saw that it was a diamondback rattlesnake. In fact, the second one that I've seen on that trail in the past six months. And I stopped, as you might imagine, because the snake was in the middle of the trail. And up ahead of me, I noticed a group of bikers coming down the trail towards me and towards the snake. And when I saw them, I held up my hands and yelled at them to stop, warning them that there was a snake in the trail, not just any snake, but a rattlesnake. And as I continued on my run, I warned another family further down the trail with small kids because I didn't want them to be hurt by the snake. I wanted them to keep their eyes open as they went down the trail. Now, in that instance, I had a declarative role. I could let folks know of the danger ahead. I could persuade them as much as I possibly could to be careful about what's ahead, to be on the lookout and to take caution, but I couldn't force them to do anything. My words were meant to create a change, but at the end of the day, they could do what they wanted. And because the authority of the church leader is declarative or persuasive, the character of the leader matters so much because they have to earn a hearing. They have to garner trust and respect. If they act like God, it validates their authority. If they don't act like God, it invalidates their authority. So these are characteristics of church leaders that Peter highlights. And it's important to recognize that motives are more important than methods. In other words, character is the most important aspect of leadership, but competency is also crucial. So let's turn and look at the competencies that church leaders need in this passage. It'll be a little quicker. When you think of church leadership, I wonder what words come to mind. For many people in our culture, words like abuse, fear, disappointment, manipulation, difficulty come to mind. But the first thing that came to Peter's mind is the word shepherd. Why is that? Well, it's a rich description of God's leaders that's used throughout scripture, but it's a word that had special meaning for Peter specifically and personally. You've got to go back to John chapter 21 and take a look at one of the most meaningful moments in Peter's entire life. Remember, it was in this passage where Peter encounters Jesus for the first time after his resurrection, having just denied Jesus three times a few nights before. And he comes into contact with Jesus for the first time and Jesus asks him three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, yes, yes. And three times Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. 
It should be no surprise to us that Peter is addressing the leaders of Christ's church under great persecution with the word shepherd. The first competency we see Peter highlight in verse 2 is the art of shepherding, and he uses the word as a verb, not a noun. It's an action that a leader performs. A shepherd is faithful. A shepherd has to live with the sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not only that, the work of a shepherd is often lowly work, not garnering much respect. Being a shepherd in many ways was an unpleasant assignment. It was dirty. It was dangerous. It was tiring. Yet in the midst of the difficulty, a shepherd continues to tenderly nourish, to guide, and to protect the sheep. The sheep and the shepherd are bound up with one another, and the shepherd's foundation of loving the sheep is his love for Jesus. Like Peter, they feed the sheep because they love Jesus. I love you, Jesus, feed my sheep. I love you, Jesus, tend my lambs. The second competency we see Peter highlight is exercising oversight. The Greek word here is episkopeo, where we get our word episcopal. It's a word that highlights church government. There's an administrative aspect that leaders of Christ's church engage in. There's a certain kind of authority that they have in making sure the church operates smoothly with regard to structure, with regard to budget, with regard to programs, organization, volunteer coordination. There has to be some level of administrative skill in place for effective church leaders. And this oversight is exercised for the good and flourishing of the church so that the church might accomplish her task of gospel proclamation with maximum effectiveness. The last competency we see mentioned by Peter in verse 3 is that elders must be examples of the flock. Church leaders are not only supposed to be known for their knowledge, which they should have, but for their way of life. Elders are meant to be examples. They don't just talk about repentance. They actually extend repentance and repent often. They don't just talk about grace. They actually extend grace. They share the gospel. They commit to community. They practice hospitality. They live as an example. A leader's life has to support their words, and it may even be more eloquent than their speech. So these are the competencies that Peter highlights for leaders in the church. Told you it was going to take a little more teaching bent this morning. They've got to be able to shepherd, to exercise oversight, to lead by example. And as you hear the characteristics and competencies that Peter highlights in this short passage, it makes you wonder, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? I know from experience that leaders in the church constantly, constantly feel out of their depth. They constantly feel like they're beyond their pay grade. They feel in their bones that they're not better than anyone else. And so they need our prayers. They need our support. Our leaders, they need our encouragement. I read a book this past year by David Hansen entitled The Art of Pastoring. And towards the end of the book, He's recounting how he was in a funk during a particular season in his life and in his ministry. And he was taking a walk and he was praying to God, but really receiving no assurance and no peace about his ministry or his leadership. And this is what he writes. I felt angry. I asked God over and over how much longer I had to be a pastor, only to receive that rotten silence, which means the old one-day contract routine. 
God gets me through hard times by asking me to be a pastor for one more day. I agree. I agree to one more day, not two. That's fine. I've spent years in ministry on one-day contracts. As we all lean into the areas of our life where God has called us into leadership, you will feel weak a lot. You will feel unequipped. You will feel out of your depth. You will feel out of your league, but God will provide the grace and the strength that's sufficient for one more day, a one-day contract. So we've seen the characteristics and the competencies that Peter highlights in this passage, but leadership has to be given and received in the context of community. So let's talk just for a minute, and I'd love you to stay with me, about the community required for church leadership to flourish. A sheep pen needs boundaries. Which elders take care of which sheep, right? Which elders are sheep supposed to submit to? Well, the only way to establish that is with what we call church membership. When Peter encourages elders to tend the flock of God in their charge, he is assuming that the elders were able to identify who was in their charge, in their city, in their community. And throughout history, Christians have grouped themselves together and received the shepherding of an elder or a leader. And this means that church membership matters. And you might not think it's important, but I'll tell you, there's churches in our city that have completely jettisoned the idea of church membership, completely given it up but it connects us to one another. We're held together by our promises and commitments to one another. So the question becomes, will you become a faithful member of a local congregation, of an expression of Christ's church in a small corner of God's kingdom? And it's frequently the case when you need shepherding the most, you will least likely be asking for it. So making a commitment to your local church in your sane moments when you're thinking clearly, is one of the most spiritually healthy things you can do. Because we all go insane every once in a while, and we need to look back at the promises that we made in our sane moments. And this community that we join ourselves to, Peter says, is meant to be characterized by humility in verse 5. It's humility for both those who lead and those who are led, for the older and the younger. We're to be known for submission and humility. It's really been a major theme of Peter's letter to these Christians. We're called to outdo one another in humility. To make it like the clothes that we wear. What we put on as we enter into each other's presence. Humility makes a community warm and hospitable. I once heard a pastor say this. It stuck with me. There aren't many things in your life that humility won't fix. There are not many things in your life that humility won't fix. And you could say that there aren't many problems with a community that humility won't fix. There aren't many problems with a family that humility won't fix. So let's clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, counting the other person as more important than ourselves. And as we do, as we do this, we're always looking beyond to the shepherd God has provided for our community to the chief shepherd that our local church leaders are always meant to point us towards. Jesus is the shepherd that we all need. He alone has the characteristics and the perfect competencies to care for our soul. The good shepherd is the model for all church leadership. And every single church leader you experience here on this earth is going to fail, is going to leave you disappointed in some way, except for the one who gave his life for the sheep, 
the one who we all follow. There's an account in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is often referred to as the lost and found department of the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep but loses one. And he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one until he finds it. And when he finds it, it says he lays it on his shoulders, he brings it home and he throws a party and says, rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost but now is found. And that's a picture of Jesus, our chief shepherd, who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And if you stop and think about it from a human perspective, that is the worst ministry strategy ever. To leave the 99 and to go after the one. To leave the big crowd and to go after the one, yet Jesus does it. And aren't you glad he did? And because at one point in time, you were that singular sheep wandering far from God. And the good shepherd who knows you by name, who came to serve you with humility and with willingness and eagerness and gentleness, came searching for you to rescue you and to bring you back into the fold. So as we follow God's pattern for the church and submit to its leadership, we always look to the chief shepherd, the one who knows his sheep by name, the one who came to rescue them, the one who lays down his life as a sacrifice to protect and to nourish and to guide a sheep. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are the leader that we follow ultimately that you are the one who cares for and guides, feeds, and protects us. We thank you for the way that you have provided for our own spiritual good and nourishment, structure that's in place here as we live in exile and as we live in a fragile society. We pray that you would give us the ability to love and to serve one another, to love and to serve the leaders that you've placed in our life for our own spiritual good. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you've come to buy us back, that you left the 99 and came after us. That's our hope this morning. That's what we take joy in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.